Strategy. Design. Marketing. UX. Digital. Development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. Rock on. Here we are. Hi, Varun. How are you, my friend? I'm great. How are you? Who do we have today? Good. Today, I'm excited to chat with our guest today. So he's an entrepreneur. He's a thought leader. He's a former lacrosse player for the Boston Cannons and the New York Lizards. I will say if you've never been to a professional lacrosse game, it's really fun. He is the co-founder of the NAR company, Mike Stone. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you. Hello. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in because I know you're prepped and ready to go with what miss you would like to smash, what bogus strategy you would like to set the record straight on. What do you got? So my myth or bogus strategy is that now is most important. And I think uh, especially small startups that need to be moving fast, oftentimes will prioritize the now so much that it makes the future harder and the nows that come in the future kind of harder to move fast and execute on. We find this sometimes with uh, engineering best practices that, that we'll push for or um, test-driven development, things like that, where a, res- a common response will be, you know, we'll add tests or do things right after we launch. And then after launch, there's another pressing issue and another pressing issue. And that tech debt mounts and mounts and mounts. And there's not often a uh, like intentional strategy to, to pay that down. Uh, so that priority on the now leads to an eventual time when the movement and the sprint forward can kind of come to a, a grinding halt. So when yeah. you say tech debt, can you give like a, just an example that way we're all speaking the same language for those who may not, I mean, I'm, I can assume what it is, but just mm-hmm. for clarity's sake. Yeah. So a, as you develop new features and add to your code base, you can add debt to it, which might be like untested parts of logic or just like kind of cruft that builds. Maybe it's repeated code in, in a bunch of places because you didn't want to encapsulate logic or, or couldn't take the time to, to do that. Or maybe you're just not taking enough time to really think through a solid data model for the problem you're trying to solve. And over time, you kind of mount on this tech debt because you're trying to move really fast right now. And then at a certain point, you know, you, you might find yourself with so much tech debt that kind of doing anything in your application takes a lot of time, whereas uh, it's kind of impossible to not add any debt, but by moving a little bit slower and a little bit more intentionally, you can actually kind of keep up the pace over time, the velocity over time. And so that's kind of what I'm referring to with tech debt. So I can relate to that so much because we have several experiences where customer would not in, would not be willing to spend time in having us do a thorough assessment or a discovery or analyze what currently is in the system that they have built. They just want us to start and go. Or even when we are starting a new project, you, t- you brought about, you brought uh, the test-driven development piece. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, not everybody wants to you know, spend time and money into that. 
And the part of the reason what I understood was, you know, yes, there is significant amount of investment you put into it, but it does go a long way in the long-term solution. But I would like to ask you, like, so in our case, we do so many variety of projects. Not every project may need that detailed assessment or detailed plan of doing, like going deep dive into the architecture and discovery and all of that. But there are projects where you do want to spend uh, that time for, for longer term. So what, what is your you know, experience? You do a variety of projects as well, different type of clients, different styles. What have you, how have you navigated that customer conversation? How do you convince them or where you have failed of not doing that? Do you do all the time as a rule or you don't do it? Like how's, what's your take? on you know making sure you are picking the right direction for your customer. I think that's a really good point and one thing I've learned from doing all these projects is there's not there aren't really rules in this space there's because there's outliers to kind of any path that you could take and so what I'm referring to is maybe like the bulk of the types of projects that that we do but there's you know there's a couple of things there because there's one it's like the recommended path might vary depending on the on the use case or the apps that, app that's being built. And the other piece is, you know, you got to find the right development partner. There might be some development partners that work really well with a certain type of path and other ones that work well with, with a different path. And what we like to do and what we found to be successful is whenever possible, if we can kind of prototype something on the design side before we get into engineering, it can help us to really know what we're gonna build and then be really intentional with our engineering decisions and get faster iterations on the design side. Cause it's much faster to uh, move pixels around in you know, Illustrator and Vision or Zeppelin or wherever you're, you're designing Figma than it is to actually, actually code that work. And so we can work very like hand in hand with the client to make sure everything is going to look right and then focus our engineering efforts on making that come to life. And it's something we've had some pushback from clients on in the past because it has an appearance of moving slower where they just want to start building right away. And we make a lot of analogies between building a, uh, an application, a web application and like construction where you can't just start swinging hammers. You need a blueprint first. And we, you know, have had to take on a lot of projects that maybe didn't follow some of these best practices and, and add, add tests and maybe move too fast and have had to shore them up and, and get them back to a place where we, we can continue to run and build with them. And, but when we start projects from scratch, we often try to front load some of that design so that we can hit the ground running. But again, that's just one path and it's not always possible, um, but it's uh, a common path that we see. Like trying to build a cake and running out of flour in the middle. Like, why would you ever do that? <laughs> trying to not build a cake, but make a cake. I, it Sound all comes like, back to food. Is that a pain point you've experienced recently? No, but it's like, if you're going to go, I mean, it's like when you're going to make a recipe and you realize you're like, okay, I'm going to start cooking. Cause you're like so excited and you're hungry and you realize, well, I don't have enough flour and then I don't have baking soda. And then, oh shoot, I ran out of salt. It's like, let's, you should probably make sure you have your ingredients in place before you get started cooking and crafting the whole thing um are there 
I know you mentioned a couple of design tools and are there specific tools that you use with clients to be able to manage that process? Just out of curiosity, you know, with, with folks listening, it's a, there's so many ways to do it. I'm assuming, have you found one that works? You know, I've used Figma and a couple of others like UI type tools in the past, Mm -hmm. but do you have a favorite? Yeah, we're starting to use Figma more. Um, In the past, we'd done like a combination of, um, sketch and envision envision can be nice because it can provide a clickable prototype and we find that sh- like showing clients that clickable prototype so they can experience the application can be really helpful but uh, figma now has that ability as well so we have been moving a bit towards figma but uh there's still a, uh, depending on how long we've been working on a project there's some uh fluctuation there so uh, many times you know technology offers several advantages which the customers are not aware of you know i want to take this point back to what earlier uh, you said earlier about you know having them build a create a blueprint and do a discovery. So what are some of the best practices that you might have identified or adopted that helped you identify those gaps and educate your customer about the importance of doing the deep dive before you get into the, you know, building stuff? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. as an agency, you know, when you are positioning yourself as full service, you start from strategy, then design, dev, and then ongoing support and maintenance. You know, we have experienced that as a challenge to sell discovery, to help them understand the idea of creating the blueprints. So uh, I know many other agencies also struggle with this. They all want to do discovery. It makes total sense but they still struggle. They still find it hard to convince the customer. So I was wondering if how, how have you been successful, if you have been successful, and if there are any tips and tricks that you can share. Mm-hmm. We've certainly had pushback on it in the past. I think just talking through the value of it, making some of those analogies, and, and also showing the final products of how other design and discovery engagements have gone out have been encouraging for folks to see, you know, one, it's uh, relatively inexpensive, uh, much less expensive than engineering work. And once you show the result of, you know, this is what we did for somebody similar to you, they kind of get blown away. And I, I think when we've had clients that are maybe on the fence about it and then have decided to do it, they always get blown away at the end about like how great it looks, how good the user flows are. And, and they really value that process in hindsight. But, you know, it, sometimes it, it can be a little bit more of a struggle to, to get yeah. people to buy in. But it, from our perspective, we really can't just start swinging hammers. We, we need to provide the engineering team with a blueprint and a sense of what they're going to build. And, and it can't just be, I need an app that does this. Um, it, uh, it really, we really need to be able to like, visualize that and see how it's going to come together and what those user flows are in order to get started. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that makes sense. So, and, and I totally agree with you. An engineering, engineering team does need the proper and detailed inputs from the design or discovery, you know, because then only they can find and identify the right solution. So when you come, when it comes to building phase or developing phase, what, what is that that makes your team so effective in creating and building? Like why, what makes you different than others? Like what, you know? 
You might say, why are you guys so gnarly? Right. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> I do. I do. Very good. I think that over time, we've built a repeatable process that's really effective at being able to move quickly while also providing a really high quality product. And what that often looks like is starting out with that design discovery. So we really know what we're going to build. Um, and that helps us. Like when we start on a project, when we get into engineering, we know exactly what we need to, to build. And oftentimes, you know, there'll be some parts of design that maybe are out of scope or that we're going to phase into another part of the project or something like that. But for the most part, you know, our engineering team can take the design and start building it out. And so we'll often use, uh, we, we use agile software development. It's almost like a mix actually of waterfall and agile because we've almost waterfalled the design side where we really push the client to think through what their product's actually going to do and, and what it's going to look like and the different flows. And then we get that into development. And from there, it works in a pretty agile way. And, and sometimes we'll circle back to design and then back into engineering. But it, it works really nicely because we can really hit the ground running on the engineering side and we'll break down the design into user stories, essentially. So looking at everything as a whole and, and sort of dividing up epics for each one of big chunks of functionality. And then within each epic, um, into these like minute user stories. And then we prioritize those. Um, we use often Jira, but there's a, a million project management software out there that you can build a backlog of those user stories and start to prioritize. And we really involve the client the, the whole way. I mean, some of the minutia of it, will we take care of, of like writing up the tickets and, and stuff like that, especially if the client's, you know, not technical or something like that. But uh, we want to make sure that what we're working on is the highest priority to, uh, to the client. And so we try to push to production regularly. Um, we're having uh, agile ceremonies throughout the week, like sprint plannings and retrospectives to make sure uh, we're on track. We're working on the most pressing things and our relationship with our client is strong. Um, and that's where it can be, uh, uh, that's where it can involve design again a little bit. If we get a product out into users' hands early, um, maybe some feedback from the client uh, or from users makes the client decide, I actually want to pursue this direction a little bit more than what we initially talked about. And we're e easily able to kind of move in those different directions and stay agile um, and try to just get, get product into users' hands early and often. So you, you spoke about... Um you know, several tools um, as a part of Agile process. So you follow Agile pretty well. Um, I'm going to ask you, and it's okay if you don't know the answer, but I still ask, uh, if you know an example or an instance where the Agile process might not have worked for you. I know everybody talks about Agile, everybody knows the benefits and, you know, you should do it, but when, if it, has not worked for you. Do you can you think about any instance? Uh, I mean, I haven't come across any. I could imagine if you're like, you know, building software that's gonna like 
operate a rocket ship or something like that, that you kind of have to, it's tough to build something like that in an agile way, uh, you know, where you'd be putting people at risk if you didn't cover all your bases ahead of time or something like that. But I mean, I've heard of agile working in all different industries, companies of all different sizes, um, certainly in my personal experience in, in different industries and company sizes and problem domains, it's been very effective. So I, I think it's, it's an outlier when you'd have to waterfall something, um, though, you know, I'm, I'm sure those cases do exist. Yeah. And, and, and in the design phase, you definitely, you know, well, you, you, you do it yourself. You, you do follow waterfall when you are designing because that time you have a very clear, or at least, you know, here's a time bounded. This is what we need to do. And then this is fixed, fixed time frame, fixed cost. Um, after that, whatever happens in engineering, it's all free flowing. It is going to be dependent on how quickly you can get to the market, stay agile and get to the hands of the users and get feedback as soon as possible. So that's what your approach has been. Right. And that's, that's how we came about that process is that we'd have clients that would say, how much is it going to cost to build this application? And we'd say, well, we don't know what the application is yet, so we don't know. And so what we ended up doing was saying, we can do this design discovery engagement that is relatively inexpensive and will be helpful for you in figuring out exactly what, you, what this application's going to be. And it'll be really helpful for us to figure out what that is gonna be. And then at the end of that, we can give them a really fine-grained estimate on what the development of that application is going to be. So it makes our estimates really clear. It, it kind of sets uh, a stage for a really good uh, client relationship. And then we still charge time and materials in the engineering phase so that we can be agile and we can change direction as needed instead of having to deal with change orders and all that. But the client act at least has expectations of what the cost is going to be and it allows us to really clearly communicate if that's going to change based on how the direction of the application development changes. I've never had a client who's gone through that. I mean, because I feel like the discovery process is something a lot of a lot of people in the agency world and consulting world kind of we go back and forth about should we get we all know we should get paid for it. Let's I'm just going to say it. There's a myth that we should bust right there. Do you charge for it? How do you charge for it? You know, outside of those questions, you've had people who've gone through the discovery for you guys at NAR and say, yeah, we can't afford that. We're good. And they move on, you know, and you, they haven't accepted. And I guess the, they, they a yes, no question. The... Yeah. Or just like, yeah, we don't really want to do that. Like, we're thanks for the discovery. We're going to take our business. Like, how do you even deal with something like that? Like, that's oh, totally. Yeah. We encourage them to do that too. Like the design and development aren't tied together. We, I think we have a really great design discovery process, whether you work with us on engineering or not. Um, most of the time people do the engineering side of, of the work as well. And we always provide them with an estimate um, so that they know kind of what they'd be getting into there. But we also always encourage clients to get quotes from other places too. And sometimes they, they will go. So, I mean, sometimes budget is, is a, a real issue. That's usually the reason why somebody would go somewhere else, because also 
in doing the design discovery engagement, they, we build a relationship with the client and they get to know what working with us would kind of look and feel like. And, and oftentimes that's really positive. So then they want to keep working with us when budget is an issue. Sometimes we'll try to help find a, a, a lower cost option or encourage them to, to search around and find a, another lower cost option, but they still have those resources. They own that prototype that was built for them and the designs that were built for them. So they won't have to do that all over again. They can bring that somewhere else. Um, it, it's rare, switch, but it happens. I want to switch directions and bring you to the talk about going back in the days, you know, when you started the company, what, what was the thought? Why did you start the dark company? Like, you know, what, what was other than, you know, running a business, making money and all that, what well, going from professional sports into running exactly. an agency, that was, you know, take yeah. us through that, it, not to it, cut yeah. you off, Arun, but. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It you certainly right. wasn't a direct path. So the, the short version of the story is that I, I was playing professional lacrosse in Boston. I started a different company. It was called Giving Something. The idea was to help nonprofits receive in-kind donations and in turn further connect nonprofits with their donor base. So like instead of giving a uh, $20 check to the Boys and Girls Club, you could give them a basketball and they could send you a picture of somebody playing with that basketball and and make that connection really strong. So when playing professional lacrosse, it's not like playing a big four sport. You don't get paid a lot of money and the demand on your time isn't as high so I started that, that giving something business at that time. And that was my intro into technology too. I, I didn't know how to code at the time and basically taught myself with giving something, how to code and realized in that process that I really loved to code and wanted to just learn more and learn more. So giving something was ultimately unsuccessful and we had to fold. And uh, I just decided that I was going to be a software engineer now, or that was my goal. So I went um, back to school, did a general assembly uh, boot camp to learn, learn how to code professionally, and then got a job at a company called Miu Health, which was a, a health and wellness startup in, in Boston. And um, that's where I met my co-founder, Nick, um, and, and Pete Whiting, and where kind of NAR was, I guess, born at because uh, so a few years into MU Health, uh, the company wasn't doing so great. Um, and it was clear that you know, there was going to be a round of layoffs. Um, I really credit that team for being so transparent in a really difficult time um, and just kind of letting everybody know that maybe the end was near. And so there'd be you know, just kind of buzz around what are people going to do next and um, Nick had worked previously at Terrible Labs, which was a consultancy in Boston, and um, had some idea of, of starting a consultancy. He knew about my background with, with giving something, and we got paired up. We weren't on the same team or anything. There was uh, another person that kind of helped pair us up. And um, yeah, once we just kind of started building it nights and weekends, and once the layoffs happening happened, we transition to full-time and you know, started the two of us and then um, continue to grow from there. And how big are you right now? How many people? About 20 full-time engineers. In five years, 20 people, it's a 
it's a pretty fast growth. It's fascinating to hear that. I think, I mean, especially in the agency world, you know, 20 people is it's great. We've tried to be pretty conservative. I, I think the nice thing too is that there's so much demand for agency work. Um, so there's a lot of like coopetition too. We have a lot of development partners and design partners and infrastructure partners where if there's a project that's not right for us, well, we can refer it out or, or others will refer work in. And so there, there's been um, pretty high demand since we, we've started and we've tried to be really conservative in, in our growth and not just try to, you know, race and have a, a roller coaster ride of hiring and layoffs and all of that. But, um, you know, we don't have layoffs and um, have been able to just kind of slowly but surely grow the team and and now uh, yeah pretty pretty substantial size i i want to talk about that the the concept or the idea of uh working with partners how how i mean clearly it has been working very well for you and um you know it otherwise as i said like your growth has been conservative or what you would have higher thought in-house so the idea of partnering with other people other agencies can you share some experiences around what have you learned in working with the agency or other partners, like what should people keep in mind when you know looking for a partner? What should they avoid? What should they look for? How do you pick the right partner? Because I mean, I totally agree with you. Like for agencies, it, it makes so much sense. Uh, you stay small and then you expand your network, especially when you are positioning yourself as full service. You are not niching. So when you are offering to ev- like to everybody, you want to have network of people that you can, um, you know, rely on. So what mm-hmm. have your learning been? Yeah, I think that's really important. And I found that it can be really hard to find the right partner from the client side, especially if it's a client that's maybe not technical and can, can evaluate a partner from a technical side or kind of go, go into the weeds. Um, and same for you know, design or, or infrastructure it can be really difficult. And on top of that, you have to balance budget and quality. And it's, it's tough to find a right answer. What I guess what we try to do is help the client, whether or not that means working with us. And so we've done um, code audits, for instance, because sometimes we'll have a client that comes to us that says, we need a lot of work. We had you know, work done by another uh, development partner. It didn't go so well. We want to work with you. And, and we'll first start out by taking a look at their code base and just making sure it's the right tech stack and um, that it, you know, it's the right project for us to take on. And if it is great, but if it's not, we'll give them some ad- advice, right? Of like, maybe there's a partner we know that can help them out. Um, maybe we can just say, here are some things to look for, some questions to ask when you, when you talk to partners, it's not really like a one size fits all, um, problem, but I, but we certainly recognize how difficult it can be to find the right partner. I'm trying to think of like what I would tell somebody, but again, it's like so specific to what the actual challenges that that client is facing of kind of like how to help usher them. Uh, in the right direction, but maybe asking um, consultancies or, or potential partners like what they're great at and what they're not so great at. And that way you can kind of figure out maybe you need to pull together a couple of different pieces to uh, 
to make that work. And, you know, also just making sure the partnership feels right, that it's, you know, you're not talking to a salesperson that's going to throw the project over the fence and not care about the success of the project and that you feel comfortable that, you know, you found a partner that actually can deliver on what they're, they're telling you they can. Did you, well, have you ever found a, a wrong partner in the past? Like you have been working with partners and there is always like, you must have tried few, or maybe you were lucky enough to never have found a wrong partner. I mean, that would like, we have partnered with other agencies as well in the past. And we know like now we have created, um, you know, like we, we always go through a referral network now. We don't go just hire anybody. Like in the beginning, we did try a few bunch of agencies and, you know, smaller shops to where we needed support, but then we have had some bad experiences. So we decided like, you know, if we are going to part, work with partner, it has to be through a referral. And the other thing we did was making sure the project is still under our control. So our internal PM would still own the product, right? Even though we are subcontracting the work, we will not just give them the entire thing because customer trust us and we want to make sure we have the ownership. So is that something you guys do as well or you have some other strategies to make sure that, you know, the work is, your customer is happy and that's the ultimate goal for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think it is important for us or for one partner to own the project. And then if you need to bring on other partners, almost like, you know, being a contractor or something with subcontractors and you can kind of manage the overall work, but, um, you know, maybe you don't have all of the pieces. Uh, I, I do think that's important versus putting that burden on the client to manage all those, those moving pieces. Um, so that, that definitely uh, makes a lot of sense and is, is something we do when we partner with folks. Um, we've had, when we look to build out our uh, like referral network or, or partners, we'll often try to use um, small projects and ideally internal projects to, to mm -hmm. test out the working relationship. So last time that we um, rebuilt our website, we um, went to a new uh, design partner. Uh, at that time, we didn't have design in-house, we now do, um, but we went to a, to a partner to see if we could find another um, local partner to, to execute on the design. It didn't work out really well. And we ended up going back to our previous partner. And, and so that one, you know, didn't work out, which was fine. At least we tried. Um, but it also didn't impact any client work because we tried it, you know, uh, ourselves to, to make sure it would work first. So we try to do that sort of thing whenever possible. When uh, is there, is there one key question, you know, with the partner that it didn't work out with? I think that's that's always something someone's concerned about is how do I make sure they're the right partner for me? Did you find, you know, retrospectively, was there something you should have asked prior to working with them? Or you have any deep tidbit or not even deep, <laughs> just any sort of tidbit there that you you might impart to folks listening as you you know, I feel like this partnership thing is is something all of us, you know, obviously we we do a lot of that with folks, um, mm -hmm. but even with looking for when you're making a referral and someone might not be your ideal client, you know, finding the right person to refer them out to and understanding that. So, yeah. And that's where it's so hard because there's so many different types of partners, right? Is it a design partner? Is it a website partner? Is it a custom software partner? Is it a, you know, database or infrastructure partner? Um, and there might be kind of different 
things to ask each and also who's the client or the, is the client technical? Is the client non-technical? Um, where it's hard to kind of hone in on a couple of things to, to ask for or to, to really harp on in, in the evaluation. Um, but, and then there's also, you, know, you wanna make sure they're technically capable. You wanna make sure you trust them, that they're organized and you feel that they'll be able to effectively manage the project. Um, so I, I think those things are the easier ones to maybe poke at is, can you give me an example of a project that is similar to this one that you've done in the past? Or can you walk me through how you manage a project? Um, those sorts of questions are easier to ask for really anyone that, that you'd be partnering with. But um, it, there's also a lot of kind of case by case type questions. It's, uh, yeah, you know, working with a lot of partners ourselves, there's always, it's also asking for the referral, I think is a good one. You know, to, can I talk to a client that you've worked with that might be similar? How do you totally. think another one is like, how do you prefer to work? You know, Varun mentioned, like, we like to keep the PM internally and manage, you know, that way, or do you prefer a handoff and then a hand back and they sign two separate contracts? I think those are important mm -hmm. kind of things to work through in the beginning. Um, I will ask, have you ever worked, you know, you mentioned working locally with folks. Have you ever worked with anybody offshore? Have you experienced there at all outsourced? I haven't. So we haven't partnered with any offshore agencies. I've worked at companies that have had like an offshore um, office. Uh, I think it was in India, the most recent example. And that, that worked really nicely, actually. Our, our team is onshore and um, don't have a ton of experience working with uh, Not yet, offshore. anyways. Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I you, think- Because you like, guys do a fair amount of, of offshore, right? You manage onshore, is that correct? We, we do, but I think this is um, kind of a burning question and desire of many. I mean, we talk to a lot of agency owners these days, right? Especially after COVID, this has been a hot topic because people are thinking- twice to bring everybody in-house or go nearshore, offshore. I mean, everybody can work from everywhere, right? So I know when mm -hmm. we spoke last time, I think two months ago, uh, you know, you, you did mention that you don't do offshore at all. Um, I, 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 I would like to talk a little bit more about the thought process behind that after, especially after COVID, right? Especially after COVID, things have changed so much. And because of competitiveness in the domain, in this industry, um, agencies are feeling that pressure of cost when clients ask them about, you know, they are getting the work, you know, for cheaper because of everybody's everywhere, right? And they have their own people, they have their own contracts offshore, nearshore for lesser cost. And clients ask agencies about, you know, if they can give discounts because they also know that work is being done everywhere around, you know, on the, on the other part of the world. So my question to you is, um, I know last time you said you don't do offshore. Right now, you say you said that you don't have anyone offshore in your team, but you did work with somebody who had offshore, and you had a good experience with that. With all of that, where are you heading? Like, what is your thought right now? How are you approaching? Do you still have um, you know, you still think that you will never do offshore. If yes, then why not? If um, if no, then you know, how will you navigate that decision making? Mm -hmm. I yeah, I think in the 
with a client that I worked on that um, had an offshore team, what worked really well was they really effectively managed that work. Um, and I think that's been some of the, the challenge with thinking with us thinking about uh, working with off with folks offshore and the ben the huge benefit is is cost. I think the challenge is um, in our model, we don't have any PMs. So our engineers work directly with the client. And um, when offshoring, it can be challenging, mostly from like a time zone and language barrier perspective to, uh, to make that model really work. I think where it can be very effective is when you have like a, a, a PM layer that, um, you know, can effectively manage the, the client and the development team to keep that, that work going. I think the quality of development can be good. Um, it's more of the kind of management that can um, be challenging with the way that we structure our projects. Yeah, that, that, that makes a total sense because that, that is very true as well. With, from our experience, all the agencies that we have worked with they all have the PM layer. They all have the technical PM or you know product manager who is the connection between the end client and the offshore team. And that makes, I mean, that makes the relationship so strong and very effective for everybody. Um, we have several experiences where our team would work directly, and then that has not been successful that much. So uh, that is definitely a missing piece. Uh, if you don't have the PM layer, it would be hard. So um, having said that do you still see or experience that pressure of the cost from your client or not? I mean, you are, like, how are, how is your agency? Like, again, this reflects back to the COVID situation. Like how has COVID changed the trajectory of your business growth and how are you looking ahead um, after coming over like last from 2020? Yeah, we certainly hear from, like prospective clients from time to time that were too expensive. That's, that is a, a common uh, bit of feedback that we receive on, on our prices. I, I think the way we position ourselves in the market is that we're not the most expensive that you're going to find and we're not the cheapest you're going to find, but we uh, I believe have very strong, uh, very high ROI and very strong value for the price. Um, so we kind of play a bit in the middle, um, but the talent of our team and the way that we're able to execute on pro uh, projects, you get really high value for what you're paying. And we've seen that that really resonates and rings true with, with um, a lot of clients that we work with, but there are absolutely clients that, that, you know, uh, that it's still too expensive for, and that, and that's fine. And we don't, push back on that at all. But the reality is we pay our engineers a lot of money and we need to be able to have a healthy business. Um, and, and there becomes kind of a floor that we can work within. And we do um, pride ourselves on being flexible with clients and working however we can to make things work. So whether that's um, changing around start dates or number of engineers on projects or payment plans or whatever needs to happen to, um, to work together, if there's a good fit, we'll, we'll um, do that. But sometimes at the end of the day, it's not possible and uh, it's best to kind of 
part ways or look elsewhere. So I'm going to shift gears here for a minute in our conversation and, and, and move on to, let's talk about you a little bit, Mike. What do you do outside of work? You know, you have such an interesting trajectory to get into agency life. You know, what else? I know we were catching up a little bit before, before this recording. You've got some cool life stuff going on. Give us a, tell us a little bit about what you do outside of, that might be so, I'm just going to say it again, gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, yeah, a good, it's a good company name you know like why not I, yeah I gotta say naming companies is so so hard so hard and uh yeah we had a, a tough time I love our company name and it did come out of you know uh we solve your gnarly problems is is what it uh kind of came from but it took us a long time to get there of just names that that missed or we didn't like or domain names were changed or taken mm-hmm. and um but, uh, but anyway, life outside of the NAR is not super gnarly, but I do have, um, you know, some, some interests and in, in stuff uh, outside of work that I really enjoy. Biggest thing is I just had a son of, uh, about six weeks ago. And so learning how to be a dad has been my, my biggest priority. Um, and uh, my this son Bowen has been amazing. Yeah, first son. And um, so that's just been fun watching how he changes every day and, and each week. Um, and then, you know, in the time that I can find uh, outside of, of work and dadding, uh, I really enjoy sports. I play tennis and lacrosse a lot. Um, we try to get outdoors as much as we can while the weather's good and we'll go hiking around. I live in Westchester in New York and there's a lot of, um, like good hiking trails and stuff around here. So we try to stay outside and stay active as much as we can. But do you find yourself, I'm always curious, like as a former professional athlete, do you find yourself missing or wanting to coach or how does that translate into your outside life? I just know friends who grew up playing football and they're like, okay, I want to coach and they can't keep their mouth shut and they want to participate. And it's, so I'm just, none of them are professional. So I'm curious. I definitely, well, I was a coach for a very long time as well. It's a common uh, other profession while you're a professional lacrosse player is, you know, you fill in the time with coaching and doing camps and clinics and stuff like that to make money. Um, And I did that for a long time. I burnt out pretty hard by the end of my professional career where like, I never wanted to touch a lacrosse stick again. And um more I and I didn't for a long time and then in the last couple of years I've like the love of the games come come back a bit which has been awesome because you know I don't think I'll ever find another thing that I'm that good at um and so it's nice to love the thing that you're capable in <laughs> and uh and I'm outside really of daddy right Oh, uh, yeah, well, I'm still learning there. And yeah, my, my goal is to be a better, better dad than lacrosse player. Wow, if I can't execute on that, it's bad. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been really nice to play again. So I, I don't quite have the, the itch to get back to coaching. But you know, maybe when Bowen grows up, I'll, I'll coach his teams. Oh, I'm sure I'm, that'll happen. I, I, can write, I can write down right now that after seven years to his first baseball game, you're going to coach him or his soccer game. You're going to be the coach of his team. 
So I'm sure that's right. going to happen. And I'll be like that annoying parent in the stands, like yelling and yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I hope you'll not, but coach. I'll probably be embarrassing myself. Yeah, you'll be great. Oh no, coach. you'll be embarrassing him. That's the way the game works. Because you True. don't care that right. So that's I'm gonna get yelled at in a lot of car rides. <gasps> Cut it out. <laughs> well, we have one final question for you. Um, as we wrap things up, you know, as an agency owner, we like to ask you, what's that one thing that keeps you up at night? What's the you know, lying in bed going, uh outside of sales. Well, and outside mm-hmm. of putting your baby to sleep. Oh, well, outside of actually going to bed, you know. <laughs> so, you know, all of us say it's our next sale, it's our next client. You know, like we're looking right. for something a little bit more creative there, my friend. Gotcha. Um, the first thing that comes to mind um, would be, I'm because of my background with athletics, I just love being on teams. And um, a big part of what my role on at the NAR is outside of engineering is um, building the team. So that's often my huge focus is just, you know, making sure everyone's happy. Um, if there's, you know, any, any issues or challenges, making sure that, you know, they're getting resolved and we're all, you know, fostering a strong culture and bringing on the right people. And um, that's, that occupies um, a ton of space in my mind and often, you know, keeps me up at night, uh, but I love doing it. And at the end, we have a wonderful team and a wonderful culture. And, you know, I got to play a part in making that happen along with the, the rest of the team. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud of our team for it. And so I, it, it brings me a lot of joy, but it does keep me up a lot. Well, so, okay, I lied. I have one more question because I can't help myself. This is a topic we talk with, I think, uh, probably 100% of agency owners that we've interviewed on the podcast. What, how, how do you keep them engaged? How do you keep them happy? Like, and I know that's a long answer. Give us, you know, kind of one thing that you have found in that builder of culture that you're like, oh, this totally has worked or we found that this weekly meeting kind of works or, or, or some sort of tidbit or parting words. I think the biggest thing that we do is being, is that we are, we're like very transparent and respectful of the people that we work with. So um, we're transparent with you know, how the company's doing. We have a quarterly meeting where we like open up the books and we talk about not only how are we doing financially, how all the projects that we're doing have contributed to, to that and also what we're focusing on for the, uh, the rest of the year or um, how we have executed on the things that we've set out to do and it's okay to fail. And um, we just are very um, open with, with that. And then we provide everybody with a lot of autonomy. So we're not micromanaging or looking over people's shoulders. We're trying to hire the right people and capable people um, and let them do their job. And I think people really respond well to that. I think that's such an interesting and great way. Um, great, well, great way to end our conversation. But before we do that, it, I would say, I think that's something that a lot of folks pre-COVID struggled with how to to deal with that and how to be authentic and transparent. And we're finding 
you know, a lot of agency owners and ourselves, it's like, we have to be because people want that, you know, I, as mm -hmm. I've managed many a team, it's like, I have an open door policy. I worked for a company years ago that said, if you ask questions, well, can you like, what kind of, what kind of environment is that? And so yeah. you, you said a couple things that it's this transparency, it's this openness, and this is, we're here to help and it's okay to fail. That's like really important. I think components that have come out of that uh, honestly that have come out of COVID have, you know, stuck with the retention of employees and things like that. So, well, yeah, I, I think it like with the change to remote as well, um, you have to be very intentional about those decisions and the ways that you do that too. Like we have a policy of um, like putting your video up when you do video meetings so that it, you feel like a personal connection with people. And I'm, it's a very small thing, but I'm surprised how, uh, many companies don't do that and the effect that it can have in just making feel, people feel more comfortable um, with each other or feel like they know each other more. Um, and you know, there's just a lot that you can do that's very, each piece is very small, but it can come together well. Like we have victory and defeat channels in Slack where people can say like, and oftentimes it has nothing to do with work and that's okay too. But it like just the little things can really help people get to know each other and work well together and just be comfortable. Imagine a world before Slack. I'll say it, you know, like how would this, have, how would this have worked, man? Seriously. So but well, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, you know, we appreciate your time. And so where folks can find you, uh, I believe you're on the LinkedIn on Michael V. Stone, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, and then simply the nar.co. So thanks so mm -hmm. much. Um, you know, for folks listening, that's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laugh, please tell someone about the podcast. Rock on. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.